Well, good morning, church. And happy New Year. I, uh, I, can, I uh, look forward to continuing on in uh, the book of Revelation with you. And uh, we're going to take that up again, Lord willing, next week. Now, I don't usually preach holiday messages. I know I did this year. Usually we don't. But uh, as has become a habit, probably over the last six or seven years, it has been to take New Year's as a time of reflection and self-examination. So this is about as close to as a consistent holiday message as it gets. And uh, the thing that really defines New Year's is self-examination, isn't it? It's a time of reflection on the year past and a time of resolve for the year to come. We're thinking about our lives, how we've lived. We're thinking about our futures, what we're going to do differently. We're thinking about what we could have done better in the past. And we're thinking about what we are going to do or hope to do better in the days ahead. There's something about replacing the calendar that that brings a season of consideration. And so I want to spend our time this morning considering what it means to live according to the Word. I want us to ask ourselves, are we doing it? And what areas of our lives need to be brought more into subjection to the Word of God? I want us to ask, have we, have we really begun to be a people whose lives are governed by the book? And we're going to look at a number of passages and different aspects of the Christian life this morning, but uh, all of them with that one goal in mind. Are you living according to the Word. We'll begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And Lord, thank You for another year. It is a mercy, Lord, that we do not deserve and one You have bountifully given. Lord, who would think that You would sustain us this long? But thank You, Father, that You cause the sun to rise on the just and on the unjust and send Your rain, Lord. I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us, Lord, to see in your word and to to hold up our lives and look at them through the lens of it, to ask ourselves, Lord, what areas of our lives need to to change, what areas need to be be brought into subjection to your word. Lord, I pray that Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to approach your word humbly because it is your word that stands over us and not us that stands over your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would mold us this morning, that you would shape us, and that even even though, Lord, we we have tried to bring so many areas, Lord, under your rule and under your reign, there are these outliers, Lord, that have yet to be brought in 
habits or attitudes, sins, Lord, that seem to still run wild. I pray, Lord, this morning would be a time when they are wrestled down and brought in and subdued for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us. Help me to preach and help us to hear. And it's in your name we pray. And it's to you we look. Amen. Well, in the time of Judges, the problem that led to the demise of the nation, the problem that runs throughout that book called Judges in the Bible, the, time that, the, the thing that led to the weakness of God's people that led to their oppression and their subjugation at the hands of their enemies was that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They did what they thought was best. They did what they thought was right. And the problem in those days, it wasn't that the people in that time of the judges were actively trying to promote wickedness and do evil. They, they didn't see themselves that way. They didn't see what they were doing that way. In fact, they may have had very good intentions. They did what they thought was right, not what they thought was wrong. If you ask them, why are you doing this? Somebody alive in that time of Judges would say, I am doing the right thing. And so the problem wasn't that they didn't want to do what was right. The problem was they made themselves the measure for what was right. They did what was right in their own eyes and not according to the Word of God. Now this is, this is post-conquest of the Promised Land. And they had the Word. They had the Law. They had the Tabernacle. They had the Priesthood. They had all of those things in the land. And yet they ignored them all. They didn't live accordingly. They thought that just having them, just possessing all of these things was enough. They thought reverence for the law, it's good. Don't have to obey it, but it's good. They thought that was enough. We have the ark. We have the priesthood. It's enough. We travel to Shiloh a few times a year. We give our assent to the law and the governance of God. It's enough. It wasn't enough. You know, it reminds me of a, of a lady I once was visiting and I, I asked if she ever read her Bible. And she answered, she said, oh no, I, I don't read it, but I love the Bible and I believe the Bible and, and every night before I go to bed, I open it up to a passage of Scripture that I want to know more or, or a psalm that I, I heard a few uh, weeks ago. And when I lay down at night, I put the Bible under my pillow and I sleep on it and I never have any bad dreams ever. And so I asked the lady, I said, do you think you might, uh, it might do you a little bit better if you read the book? And she answered, well, I suppose it would. I don't know if she ever did or not, but I know that just sleeping on the words not going to do you any good. It might as well be on a shelf or in a bookstore far away. You might as well not have it at all. Because it is a book meant not to be reverenced and possessed as if there's some uh, spiritual significance. I just I have a Bible that sits on my shelf, sits on my table. It doesn't matter. It is a book that is meant to be read and then obeyed. And if you, as a, as a believer, if you're not reading the book to obey it, because you can read the book as a historian would, there are all kinds of 
of, uh, of lost people who have no regard for Christianity at all, who read the book. It's a book to be read and put into practice. And if you're not doing that, you will never be able to do anything except what is right in your own eyes. If you never read the book, then you'll never know what is pleasing to God. You'll never be able to recognize those things in your life that displease Him. They'll go undiagnosed. You'll be unable to do His will because you won't know what it is. And you will find that your Christianity at best is weak and at worst is false. You have to understand, when you come to Christ, when anyone comes to Christ, they come as a child of the world. You come out of the world, but one of the consequences of having lived in the world is you adopt the ways of the world. The, the world's ways of reacting, ways of thinking, ways of responding, ways of reasoning about what's right and what's wrong, and, and the already foolish and sinful nature that you've inherited from Adam, it's only reinforced and farther, uh, further misdirected. And not only that, you come with worldly definitions that get applied to godly principles and worldly understandings of godly principles. And until you recognize your thinking as worldly, you won't be able to bring any of your thoughts or actions or thinking in line with Scripture. You'll be stuck viewing the Bible through the lens of the world and not the world through the lens of the Bible. You'll live according to the world and not even realize that you're doing it. You know, we, our thinking needs to be renewed. Uh, one of the passages I, I debated going to was Romans 12.1. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind so that you may know what is uh, pleasing to God, His perfect will. Our thinking, when we come to God, our thinking is twisted and it needs to be ironed out. And the Word is what irons it out and transforms us. We come with wrong ways of thinking about things. God wants us to think about things rightly. And He teaches us that through His Word. Now, our passage this morning does speak to this very concern. The concern about living according to the Word. And it speaks to this concern by holding up the total sufficiency of the Scriptures. In this passage... 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul is addressing Timothy and he reminds him not just of the importance of the Word, but of the sufficiency of the Word. You see, it's, it's one thing to say, oh yes, the Bible is important, but it's more than just important, isn't it? It is sufficient for everything that God requires. Now, for example, an example of, of a failure to do this, something that's become a, a kind of a, a blight in the church and thankfully is on the decline, but it's, uh, it's Christian counseling. Most Christian counseling is not good. And what happened? How did it become not good? Maybe you wonder. Well, it was that there were all kinds of believers who they wanted to help others overcome sins. They wanted to save marriages. They wanted to help other believers grow in grace. And all of those are good things. They're things that Christians ought to want to do. But then they went about it, not by a careful study and application of the Scriptures, but by going and getting a psychology degree and learning all of the methods of Freud or Skinner, who whoever else is being taught these days, and then having been sufficiently educated with the thoughts of the world, 
The reasonings of these psychologists who see God as nothing more than an illusion, and if you understand the Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge of God, and if you don't have the knowledge of God, how will you ever become wise? And after learning all of these unwise principles, they considered themselves finally equipped to counsel God's people. And what happened was, if you wanted to preach, you studied the Bible, but if you really wanted to help people, you would study counseling and get psychology. And I'm not talking about the, the value or merits of a university education. I'm not talking about the value or merits of a psychology degree. That's not my point. My point is, my point is, if you really want to help God's people overcome sin and grow in godliness, you need the Word of God rightly applied. Because the Bible isn't just important. It is sufficient. And it's not just sufficient for a few things spiritually, but it is sufficient for everything that God requires and commands of His people. It's sufficient for teaching. It tells us everything God wants us to know. It's useful for reproof or rebuke. Right? It puts the brakes on sinful, destructive attitudes and behaviors. It's sufficient for correction. It corrects us so that we can live righteously. It puts its finger, the Bible does, on whatever problem we're facing and putting its finger on it, it trains us in righteousness. So not only does the Word point out where the problem is, it gives us the solution. And for those reasons, the Bible is sufficient to complete and equip you for every good work. You want to be complete and well-equipped for everything righteous? This book alone is sufficient to do that. And we all agree, right? I, I hope, we all believe that the Bible is sufficient and that the Bible is our guide and that we want to live according to the Word. And what often happens is believing this, we set out to do just that. And you say to yourself, I am going to do what the Bible tells me to do. And that's good. But what often happens is a similar problem creeps in. And so we read that we should be patient, or we should be kind, or we should love our children, or repent of our sins. And do you know what happens? We set out to do those things, but then actually end up doing them in a worldly way. That's no different than doing what's right in your own eyes which is why you might so often be frustrated when you set out to do the right thing and it doesn't turn out the way that the Bible says it is supposed to. To say it simply, you have tried to do what the Bible says according to the world and not according to the Word. And we're going to spend the rest of our time taking up just examples of this, certainly not exhaustively, but hopefully enough that you can see the sufficiency and the wisdom of Scripture so that you'll order your life, not just in what you do, not just what you do according to the Word, but how you do it. And the first place that comes to mind when I think about this is always patience. Not because patience is a, is a standout in Scripture, but because it was so memorable for me when I was a new believer. I remember reading in the Word that I should be patient. Right? It's right there in the Bible. Be patient. And so I said, I need to be patient. I need to be more patient. That's what I'm going to do. And what I meant by patience was, <clears throat> this is maybe the first time, maybe the second time I read through the Bible, and what I meant by patience, what that I was going to do, was 
I'm just going to wait a few minutes longer for something that I thought should happen immediately. And in my infantile understanding of patience, it really just became a kind of delayed irritability. In fact, since I was now trying to be patient, I ended up with more time to fume and more time to get worked up over what was happening. And when I finally lost my so-called patience, it was worse than before. Well, why did this happen? Because my definition of patience was fundamentally worldly. It was wrong. I had, a, I had a limit. And if you offended my patience too severely and you pushed me past that limit, then not only would I cease to be patient, but I would be even more disagreeable and angry because now my time was wasted and you've exhausted me. And because I had acted righteously or thought I did by being patient, my outburst was even justifiable in my own eyes. But that's not patience, is it? What I had wasn't actually, what I was doing was not actually patience at all. It was just delayed irritation. But true patience, patience defined by the word, it doesn't have an upper limit. True patience that God requires and that the Spirit enables does not wear out after five minutes or an hour or a day or a month or a year or a lifetime. Because true patience, according to Scripture, endures insults and injury without returning insult or injury. It isn't even a matter of time and waiting. True patience, according to the Word, is a good-natured endurance of hardship and trials. That's patience. And so you see, if we don't get our definitions, right, the how to do something from Scripture, how are you going to know what patience even is? How are you ever going to learn? Are you going to learn from Webster's Dictionary? Are you going to learn from your friends or your parents? How will you know what God requires when He commands us to be patient unless you understand it according to the Word? Another Christian trait that falls prey to worldly definition is love. And specifically, that aspect of love called compassion. We all know that Christians are called to love others and to be compassionate. But did you know that it's possible to be compassionate and have the best intentions and to do so in a way that's not loving and is actually harmful? The Bible doesn't only tell us that we ought to love others, it teaches us how to love others. And very often what you'll discover is that the way the Bible teaches us to love others and the way the world teaches us to love others are very different indeed. In fact, one is love and the other is something masquerading as compassion. It's something else. And I'm not thinking primarily of acceptance. And do you know what I mean by that? The world's view of love is unconditional acceptance of everything. And if you don't accept and celebrate whatever is popular in the world, you're not loving. But we know that biblically the loving thing to do is not to celebrate. Not only is it love to God, it's loving them as well because it warns people they're in danger. Love refuses to celebrate when human beings that we care about joyfully and readily and zealously throw themselves into the judgment of hell. Understanding that there's a hell, understanding that there is a judgment informs how we think about love. And it's not loving to applaud people 
who are, who are rushing towards the gates of it. But there are other ways the Bible informs us how to love. Ones we much more likely are to overlook. For example, imagine you own a business. You're well off financially. And then you had a friend who had a substance problem and they, and they weren't able to hold a job because of it. Now, one day that person comes to you and he says, I've cleaned myself up. I'm going to start afresh. Old life is behind me. New life is ahead of me. I'm even going to buy a, a small business, local business that's for sale. Things are looking better for him and you're happy to hear about it. And then he asks you, hey, would you be willing to sign as a guarantor for the loan that I need to buy this business? Now you want to love your neighbor, right? You want to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want to show compassion. So what do you do? Do you sign or not? You, you know you want to love. You know you want to do the right thing. What is it? And often our gut reaction would be sign, right? That's our, our instinctual reaction. Help him. That's doing unto others. But if you did you would be doing what was right in your own eyes. Because the Bible teaches in very clear terms that is not how you love others. Proverbs 6.1, Proverbs 17.18, Proverbs 22.26, all of them say, do not do this. Do not put up security for a debt. Do not put up security, listen, even for a neighbor. And you know how significant the word neighbor is in Scripture. Do not put up security even for a neighbor. And if you have, do everything in your power to get free of it. That is what the Bible teaches. And so if I want to live according to the Word and love according to the Word, I must not sign for this neighbor. Now, of course, there's, there is more nuance to being wise than this. You, you might sign for your own children for... Uh, for instance, when they're getting on their feet. But my point is that this instinct, no-brainer answer that says, oh yes, of course the loving thing to do is to put your name on the dotted line, it often isn't loving or wise, and it needs to be informed according to Scriptures. You can apply the same to criminal behavior. For example, is the death penalty in the case of murder compatible with compassion and love? Absolutely. God commands it. And is that compassionate to the criminal? Well, I don't know. But it sure is compassionate and loving to the family of the victim. And the most heartless thing you can do is let the murderer go free. It tells the world around you, life is cheap, kill if you want, no consequences. We don't care about protecting others. Or what about people who go hungry? Often we think the compassionate thing obviously is to feed them. And if you don't know, listen, it is good to always err on the side of compassion. Good to err on the side of compassion, but if you do know that this person is lazy and you know it, they refuse to work, if they come to you hungry, not only should you not give them anything to eat, the Bible commands us if someone is unwilling to work, do not let them eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 you're commanded not to sustain them. Why? Well, because in their laziness, in their slothfulness and unwillingness to work, they're sinning against God. And if you give them something to eat in their laziness, instead of loving them, and instead of showing compassion, you're, you're actually enabling them to go on sinning and make a mockery of God. And that's not compassionate at all. Right? 
Think about it with an eternal perspective. Better to be hungry than to be satisfied in your sin. Better to be a little hungry if it gets you out the door and stops you from dishonoring the Lord than to have a full stomach. And so the compassionate thing to do, the loving thing to do, is to tell this person. And it's not, you know, not maliciously. We, we still care about these people. We still care about other people. We want them to work. And we must tell them, no, I, I can't feed you if you refuse to work. Go and work. And then, and, and then if, if they do, you, you come alongside them and help them in any way that you can. But they might get angry and they'll say, you're unloving and hateful. And the world might probably agree. But we live and love according to the Word, not the world. Or, let's get closer to home. Literally. Your family. How do you think about your role as a husband or as a wife or as a mother or as a father or yes, even as a child? Have you ever sat down and gone through the Scriptures to find out what does God expect of me as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a wife, as a child. Find out what God expects you to do and then having found out, seek in His strength to do it. What amazes me about this is how often in our family relationships we actually think we're doing a good job at being godly when the reality is we aren't being godly at all. Let me just give you an example. Husbands. You want to see your wives overcome a particularly thorny sin that frustrates them and pains you. What do you do? Every husband in this room who takes the Word of God seriously has encountered this. What do you do? Do you confront her about it every time it comes up and let her know how awful it is? Do you get worked up in a, in a righteous indignation against the sin in your house? You know that's not how the Bible teaches you to love your wives? It commands you instead to show kindness and patience and overlook sin. It commands you to pray for her and teach her the Word and above all to be an example of Christ in your home. That's what Ephesians calls us to, right? To love your wife like Christ loves the church. Now you object and you say, yeah, but then the sin will never be confronted. It will and it will have to be in some regard, but, but listen, you don't get to confront it however seems best to you. It's according to the Word. You love your wife like Christ loves the church. And loving your wife like Christ is how God determined to deal with sin in your wife. Not by you being irritated with her and pointing it out, no matter how wrong she was. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and never, listen, never be harsh towards them. Period. And when you do that, God will begin to work in her and sanctify her and make her more like Christ. And if you don't or haven't been, then you need to go to your wife and you need to ask her for forgiveness and you need to go to the Lord and ask Him to forgive you. We don't get to, yes, love our wives. Not however you want. The Word will inform you and teach you how to do this. And wives, how often do you want to change some particularly thorny or irritating sin of your husband? And how do you do it? You let him know, right? You use your words, sometimes in a, in a condescending way. And you know that the moment you do that, you undermine your marriage and undo what you're trying to accomplish? You see, the Bible doesn't just tell us what to do, it tells us how to do it. And, and, and in 1 Peter 3, it says, 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You want your husband to grow in godliness? That's how you do it. With respectful and pure conduct, not your words. And you say, well, never use words? You'll use words. But you use them in a respectful and a pure way. Because the words, you understand, the words are not what the Lord will use to deal with the sin of your husband. Your attitude is what God says He will use. And my favorite example of this, um, I heard it before from uh, Paul Washer, and he's talking about castles. And castles in Europe, uh, the front gates are huge. And you can open up the front doors and uh, 20 men walking side by side can go through the, the front door of the castle, the huge gate. But then he said, in the middle of the castle, there's the keep. That's the stone citadel in the middle. And he said, and if the castle is ever stormed, everybody runs up the stairs into the top of this keep. And there at the end of the keep, into the main, main hall, is a little door at the top of a, a spiral staircase. And that little door, only one man can go through at a time. You know the reason why the castles were designed this way? They were designed this way so that if the castle was ever attacked and they were outnumbered, everyone could retreat up to this floor of the, of the keep and one man with a spear could stand at the top by the door and hold the entire army off. Right? The way the stairs are designed, you can't swing a sword, you can't use your shield, but if you're there in front of the door, you can hold off the whole army. And he said, he said a lot of wives do this. You're upset about something in your husband and you want to change him. And you've chased him up into the, into the keep. And he's there in the keep and he's got the spear by the door and he's, he's holding you off. And you're there in the stairway and you're fighting and you're trying to get in and nothing's happening. You're throwing words at him, disrespecting him, and it's not getting anywhere. And you're praying, you're praying, oh God, help me, please do something with this awful man. And he may be an awful man. And you're saying, Lord, please do something. And he said, God is like the most well-armored, strongest, biggest knight there in the whole army, and he comes up the stairs behind you and puts his hand on your shoulder and says, then you have to get out of the way. Only one of us is going to be up here at a time, and it's going to be you or me. And so long as you're up there fighting with your husband, trying to, trying to change him, arguing with him, you know what that does? That removes God. But the moment you step back and let the Lord intervene and start working, dealing with the sin in your household according to the Word, God comes in. And so, if you're unhappy with your marriage, take a serious look at the Bible and ask yourself, am I doing what God commands me to do as a wife? Am I doing what God commands me to do as a husband? If you are, then that brings the Lord Himself into the marriage, into the battle, in a way that will bring about change. But if not, the answer is no. Then you have to put these things into practice. In fact, if you don't, then, then don't expect anything to get better. It won't. And in fact, expect them to get worse and to be more unhappy and to be more irritable because not only now are you sinning against your spouse, but more you're sinning against God and nothing good ever comes from willful, unrepentant sin. So easy to become a husband or wife who just does what's right in our own eyes and completely ignore the Word of God as if 
It never said anything about relationships or how to be a husband or a wife. Children, you're told to honor your parents and obey them in everything as this is pleasing to the Lord. Do you do this? You want to have a good relationship with your parents and a good relationship with the Lord? Obey them. Honor them. Our parents, we are commanded, especially fathers, never to provoke or exasperate our children. We are commanded to model how the Lord God treats His children. That's what we're to model. We are to be Christ to our children. And so whenever you have to deal with a child, the first thing, and really the only thing you need to be thinking about, is how has God dealt with me? Seriously think about it. Because He does deal with our sin. He does correct us. How? And then let that be your model for how you approach your children. By now, I think you see we could spend a very long time here touching on just about every area of life and asking, how does the Word apply? Right? How do I live according to the Word? But I want to get more, more pointed now. And you say, oh, how can it get more pointed than that? Listen, not only can our Christianity and our sanctification, our growing in holiness, and our family be hampered if we don't live according to the Word and, and we think we're advancing, but we think we're doing what's right and we're not, it is possible to think that we are Christians, but not be according to the Word. And if you're not a Christian according to the Word, you're not a Christian at all. It is possible to define the very foundational elements of Christianity in a worldly way. And if you've defined them and think about Christianity in a worldly way, then you'll have a worldly gospel. And a worldly gospel is no gospel at all. There'll be no real, genuine faith in Christ. And, and again, we could look at so many places, but I'm, I'm only going to direct us at two. Two that I think most clearly expose whether we are Christians according to the Word or not. And those two places are sin and repentance. How we think about sin and how we define repentance. The way a believer relates to sin and the way the world relates to sin are very different. One desires it, the other despises it. One embraces it, the other fights it. One calls it good, the other calls it evil. And there are more differences really than can be counted, but one that is particularly revealing is how do you react when your sin is exposed? How do you respond when your sin is brought into the light? Do you respond in a worldly way or do you respond according to the Word? John 3, 19-21 is probably not a passage that comes to mind when you think about sin, but... It is a passage that best describes the difference between how a Christian and how a non-Christian react when their sin is revealed. It says this, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What does light do? It exposes. And in this passage, you have two groups of people who are exposed in their sin. One group, 
that does wickedness and hates the light and wants with all of its might to extinguish the light and kill the light and go back into the darkness. And the other group that has come into the light out of their darkness and lives now in the light. And you say, what does this have to do with sin and me? It's easy. How you respond. How do you respond when your sins are exposed? How do you respond when sins deep in the heart are brought out and into the light? Do you blame others? Right? You made me do this. You're the reason I react this way. You are a fool. And you think that if it wasn't for this other person, you wouldn't be nearly half as sinful as you are. Oh, of course, it's still sin. I know I'm a sinner, but they just make everything so much worse. Have you ever do that? Have you ever done that? If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be this way. Wrong. You are that way. And that's not what's happening. They aren't creating sin that otherwise wouldn't be there. They're just exposing sin and drawing out sin that already is there. And the reason that people get so irritated about this is they hate to be exposed. This is no different from the crowds that were angry at Jesus when He exposed their sin. And He didn't do it by frustrating them. He did it by pointing it out and by living righteously. And when they were exposed, when their sin was illumined by the light of Christ, they wanted to stone Him to death and kill Him so they could, they could go back and hide in their sin and hide in the darkness and feel good about themselves. Now listen, if you're always blaming others for your sin and justify your sin and, and you get upset with others for exposing it and you're more upset about circumstances and you're more upset with people because of how bad they made you feel, if you're more upset about that than you are with how greatly you've sinned against God, you may be still living in the darkness. You ever blame your employer? He asks you to do something that's really not that unreasonable and you get so angry. You say, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be this way. Teachers in school, giving you a hard time. Parents. Oh, if my parents weren't so strict. You're manifesting in that moment a hatred of the light and a love for the darkness. That's what you're doing when you point your finger at others and blame them for your sin. Thinking that they're the ones who made you sin. And because you think that, you're not going to seek their forgiveness or repent before God. So how do you respond when your sin is exposed? As a child of light or as a child of darkness? Oh, and of course, you know, some people might be a little angry about it, about their sin being pointed out. That's just human nature. And it is. We don't like to be knocked down a few pegs. And, uh, and we love to think of ourselves as righteous. But it is possible, it is possible for, for someone to be nagging at you and irritating you and pointing it out too much and pointing it out in a, in a wrong way. And people shouldn't do that to others. But as a child of light, do you come to hate the sin when it's exposed? And do you come to hate it more than whatever it was that brought it to light? I think of Peter. Think of Peter for a moment when he betrays lots of examples. Let's just take one. Peter, he betrays Christ. Can you imagine Peter saying, well, God, why did you put me in that situation where I would deny you? I was 
You heard what I said before. I would follow you to the end even if everybody else abandoned you. Can you imagine pointing your finger at God and saying, you're the reason why I betrayed you because you put me in that situation? If it wasn't for you getting yourself arrested, Jesus, Peter didn't know his own heart. But when Peter's sin was exposed, what does he do? He doesn't blame and point fingers. He goes out and he weeps bitterly. Do you recognize when these sins are being drawn out, it's not the devil bothering you. It's God refining you to make you more like Jesus Christ. This, by the way, this is how church discipline works. More and more people are brought in, right? Starts with you and the brother who's offended, and then uh, a witness, and then brought before the church, and more and more light is being shed on a person's sin, sin that they're not willing to repent of. And the more that it's brought out into the open, when it's brought before the whole church, if they still don't repent, what? They're out. The church can no longer affirm them as a brother or sister in Christ. Because as the light turns up on sin... In a believer, it's going to bring them to repentance. And somebody who's not, it's going to bring them away, drive them away. But many times it happens in a way that's not public, isn't it? And it's not well known. It may not even be spoken out loud, but it remains hidden in the heart. My sin is not my fault. Not ultimately. And so I do not need to repent. If you do that and you think that your sin is a result of circumstances or others or whatever it is and not your own heart and you blame others and you justify yourself and you'll never go and make it right, you need to examine yourself. Are you a child of the light or a child of the darkness? Do you think about sin, your own sin, according to the Word? And when you do, do you repent? It came up a couple of times when speaking about sin because... Repentance is the only appropriate response to our sin. And, and maybe you disagree. You think, no, no, no. Repentance is a change of mind, not to turn from sin. And yes, I know that. In Greek, it's the word metanoia. And it means literally to change your mind. And I know there is a, a once and for all repentance and a, a changing of the mind that happens when a person first believes. They change their mind about God. They change their mind about themselves. They change their mind about truth and about almost everything. And they believe. And I'm talking about the Old Testament use of the word repentance. The one that comes up over and over in Kings and Chronicles. The one that David demonstrates in Psalm 51. Repentance as a response to our sin. A, a turning from it and a returning to the Lord according to His Word. This is especially in the response to sin. There is a worldly repentance and there is a godly repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 for godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. So there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. A worldly response to sin that leads to death. And a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And this means it is possible to recognize your sin and not repent of it. And even think that you have. Because dealing with sin is more than just acknowledging it. Right. I know that I've sinned. Okay, so does everybody else in heaven and on earth. But that's not repentance. It's more than saying, well, I, I don't just acknowledge it. I know that it's bad and I feel bad for doing it. So because I feel guilty, I know it's repentance and I'm grieved over what I've done. That's often as far as people get. 
They acknowledge their sin and they feel bad about it, even really bad about it, guilty about it, but that's not repentance. That's just reality. They have done wrong and they should feel guilty because they are guilty. And even if they own it, like you so often see politicians do, if they're caught in some kind of immorality, they might even ask people to forgive them, try to make restitution. But that's not repentance. That's a worldly way of dealing with sin. And if, if that's as far as it gets, it ends in death. If you want to see this in Scripture, look no further than Judas. Judas is greatly grieved after his betrayal of Christ, grieved to the point of death for what he has done. And so he tries to make things right, doesn't he? You knew that, right? Jesus ha or, uh, Judas has a form of repentance. He certainly has a change of heart. He is seized with remorse when he realizes what he's done. And when he realizes the evil of what he's done, he goes back to the priest and he returns the silver. He gives it back. He went to the right place too, didn't he? He went to the temple and he confessed his sin. He said to the priest, I have sinned against an innocent man. And so not only does he realize he's sinned, but that he's sinned against the law of God. I've handed an innocent man over to be condemned. But does that lead to his repentance? No, it doesn't. Because the very next thing we read is that Judas went out and hanged himself. He had a worldly sorrow through and through. And he, he dealt with his sin and his guilt in a worldly way. And in the end, it led to death. Now, he knows, he is known now as the son of perdition. He is lost. And what, whatever he had in response to his sin, it could not save him. Because if you acknowledge sin and have sorrow over sin and guilt over sin and confess it to others and even try to make it right, none of that is genuine repentance. That's repentance according to the world, but not according to the Word. And you say, well, that sounds like repentance to me. What's the difference? The difference is this. The one place Judas didn't go, the one place Judas wouldn't go, was to the Lord God. And all true repentance begins with a godly or a Godward sorrow. A sorrow like what David has when he says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. And it's not enough to realize that you've sinned against another person. You must see that you've sinned against God Almighty. And when you realize that, that your sin puts you at odds with Him because He's the one who said, you shall not do these things. It's His law that's been broken. And until you realize your sin has transgressed God, you'll never be able to truly repent because repentance, it is a change of mind. And the first thing you need to change your mind about is who exactly you have offended. It was God's law that was broken. It was God who was spurned. And, and the sorrow isn't, oh, what have I done? As much as it is, oh, what a glorious and good God I have offended. Then you begin to truly see the severity of sin. It's one thing to sin against a man, sin against another person who's sinned against you, but it is something else entirely to transgress the infinite God. What's a man compared to him? And if you're ever going to grasp the magnitude of sin, it's not going to happen until you change your mind about who you have sinned against. And then what do you do? You confess it, not to a priest but to the Lord God. And in confessing it, you, you don't make excuses for it. In fact, the word confess, it means literally to say the same. And you agree with God, Lord, what you say is right and righteous, and I have transgressed it. 
That's why if you don't have a biblical view of sin, you can't have a biblical repentance. You know, so often we think all we need to do is, is confess a few things that we've done. But it's a lot deeper than that. Did you know that? The Bible teaches that in a sense it's who you are must be repented of. Who you are is who you must change your mind about. It's not just that you've sinned, but you are actually a sinner. I think of Deuteronomy 18.12. Speaking of sin, the Lord says this, Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. The things that are done are an abomination. But what does it say? So is the one who does them. We have to recognize this in order to repent. It's not just, you know, that you've done a few bad things. That you are bad. This is what David says, doesn't he? I was conceived in sin, born in iniquity. It's not just some external thing out there putting pressure on me. It's something that wells up and comes out from within. And to truly repent according to the Word, you don't just change your mind about what you've done, you change your mind about who you are. It's humbling, isn't it? And seeing what you are, you forsake any ability of your own to try to atone for your sin. Judas tried to pay for his own sin, didn't he? He took the money back as if returning the 30 pieces of silver would erase the shedding of innocent blood. He found out very quickly the wages of sin is death and all the money in the world couldn't atone for what Judas had done. And no amount of money or anything else can atone for sin. There's nothing you can do. And so you must change your mind about your good deeds. They cannot save you. And if you think they can, you need to go back and think about who you've sinned against. Now, nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. We repent according to the Word. And if your sorrow over sin leads you to God, you cast yourself on Him. And many of you in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, you know what it means to be sorrowful over sin. You know you have done things and you just look back and think, why have I done this? You don't want to do those things. There's two directions you can go then. You can go on in the way of Judas or a better way, go to the Lord and cast yourself on Him and pray for mercy that you might have a true repentance. And why must you go to Him? Because the last thing about true repentance is that it doesn't come from you. Repentance is a gift. Acts 11, 28, 2 Timothy 2, 25. God is the one who grants repentance. And He gives it once for all when a person becomes a Christian and puts their faith in Christ and He continues to grant repentance as we come for greater need of it in Him. It creates repentance, does a genuine hatred of sin and a, an eagerness to be free of it and a war against it fueled by the power and grace of God. And it is a war. There's something about us that remains, even after you become a Christian, I, I, I call it the flesh, it makes war against what is righteous. And we overcome that by the power of God. That is repentance according to the Word. And so now as we, we go out into 2023, I want you to answer this question. What camp are you in? Do you live according to the Word or according to the world? How do you love? How are you ordering your family? Do you agree with God against yourself? And, and do you see sin according to the Word? And seeing it rightly, do you repent according to the Word? 
Or do you have a worldly kind of Christianity that's informed more by a culture around you than the Word of God? Well, make it your aim this coming year to bring more and more of your life into conformity to the Word that you may be more like Christ. If you realize this morning that even the Christianity you thought you had is it's more just something right in your own eyes, but has little to do with Scripture. It doesn't look like real Christianity. There's only one place that you can go. And it's not to me, and it's not to the front of this building. It is to the Lord in prayer, because He alone can grant repentance. And if He is dealing with you this morning, You need to get alone with God and wrestle with Him in prayer and do not let Him go until He grants you repentance. And if you seek Him, listen, you will find Him. He's not going to hold it up in the air away from you. If you seek Him, you will find Him. So don't go on anymore living according to the Word, to the world. Live for Christ according to His Word. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You. Your Word is a lamp in the dark, a guide to our feet, Lord. And You want Your people to be blessed and to be strong. You want them to be lifted up, Lord. And like Peter, before Peter could ever lead the church, Lord, You had to bring him low. You had to humble him. But humbling him, Lord, You then exalted him. Lord, and that's just how You work. You never, never humble your people just to trod them underfoot, Lord. It is always with an aim to give them something better than what was taken away. Lord, you always do good to your people. And I pray this morning for those who are under a sense of conviction, Lord, that they would know it's not just conviction for conviction's sake, but Lord, it is for building them up and making them more like Christ. And Lord, increasing their joy. There is no joy in sin. There is only lies and death. There is joy in abundance in Christ and in holiness. A joy that can't be taken away even if everything else in the world is gone. A joy that is unshakable. And Lord, to the degree that we secure ourselves in You, to the degree that we live according to Your Word. Lord, I think of, Lord, all the kings in the past in Israel, Lord, when they lived according to Your Word, they were blessed. When they departed from Your Word, they were cursed. And Lord, Josiah, he threw himself down on the ground when he heard about what he had done. He tore his clothes. He weeped. He repented. Lord, he was in agony over his sin and the sin of his people. And yet, Lord, that godly sorrow led him to lead the nation in one of its times of greatest prosperity and faithfulness to you. Lord, when you wound, it is to heal. When you tear down, it is to only build up stronger. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would be impressed on your people this morning. That they would know, Lord, that you are, even in difficult things, doing good to them like a doctor who must cut open the flesh in order to take out the wound. Or the builder who must tear out the rot in order to rebuild. Lord, You are a master craftsman. 
working in the lives of your people. And I pray, Lord, that, that our conviction would be seen through this. Lord, yes, we are low, but you are great, and you are doing good things for your people and to your people. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.